How do you feel if you hear about the death of a believer who God has used powerfully in the work of his kingdom? Uh, Perhaps a, a minister who God has used to save many, or a Sunday school teacher who God used to shape generations of young people by their words or example. Perhaps uh, for some here you're new to the Christian faith and that's not something you've yet experienced, but imagine how you might feel. Well, in those situations there is no doubt thankfulness for uh, a a life lived uh, for God's glory. But there is also the temptation often to despair, to become gloomy about the future. Almost as if God's work in the world will face an uphill struggle now that a particularly holy or gifted man or woman has been taken away. And yet Acts chapter 8 comes immediately after the death of a wonderful servant of God in Stephen. And it comes after his death, not not in old age, after a, a, a full life. But his death, while humanly speaking, he still had so much to give. It seems, it seems a disaster for the church. And yet what do we see here? Do we see the gospel shrinking as a result? No, in fact we see it spreading. And in fact spreading to a far greater extent than it had done up to this point. Let me ask you another question. How should the church react in the face of persecution? In the face not just of opposition but of open attack? Well there's a temptation here as well. And that temptation is to batten down the hatches. To go into survival mode. To try and preserve what we have. And yet what do we see in this chapter? We see persecution leading to the gospel spreading, to the church of Christ breaking new ground, to the gospel being preached to those who've never heard it before. And the message of this chapter is that despite the murder of a powerful servant of God, despite opposition from the outside, despite the the setback, which we'll come back to look at next week, of a, a dramatic conversion turning out to be a false conversion, the gospel continues to spread. Because this book of Acts is about the acts of the risen Jesus by his spirit. And that spirit can't be penned in or thwarted. This morning we're going to look at these first eight verses together. I don't have any headings today, but our theme is that even persecution advances the gospel. Even persecution advances the gospel. If you were to go to St Andrews today, uh, as some of us did actually a few uh, years ago in, in a minibus, uh, but if you go to St Andrews and walk past St Salvador's Chapel, you would see the letters PH marked out on the cobblestones. Uh, who or what is PH? Uh, well, PH stands for Patrick Hamilton, the first martyr of the Scottish Reformation. He was burned at the stake in 1528 at the age of 24 for proclaiming the gospel both in his preaching and in his writing. 
but rather than snuff out the sparks of gospel light that were beginning to be seen in Scotland, Hamilton's execution actually fanned the flames. The man responsible for his execution, Archbishop Beaton, was warned. He was advised that if you're going to burn any more of these Protestants, you should do it in deep cellars. Because, he was told, the reek of Mr. Patrick Hamilton has infected as many as it blew upon. In other words, people were starting to ask the question, well, well who was this man and, and what was this teaching that led to him being burned alive? And in answer to that question, many people were hearing the gospel uh, and many were believing it. Satan, as he has done so many times, both before and since, had overstretched himself in trying to extinguish the gospel light that had come to Scotland. He actually helped spread it. And we see something very similar here in Acts chapter 8. The execution of Stephen, rather than stopping the spread of the gospel, actually spreads it further. In fact, Stephen's death and the resulting persecution turn out to be the very things that force the church to do what God had told them to do, but that so far they hadn't done. There's a verse back in chapter 1 which sums up the whole book of Acts. Uh, Chapter 1 verse 8, as he's about to ascend back up into heaven, the Lord Jesus says to the eleven disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. If you want a a mission statement for the early church, uh, you have one there. You'll be my witnesses in Judea or Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And yet as we begin chapter 8, has that vision become a reality? Well no, the gospel hasn't yet left Jerusalem. Have you ever been tracking a parcel online? Uh, Perhaps it starts somewhere in Europe and it it has to come through about three different cities before it reaches Stranraer. And as you track it online, you see it reaching the first city and you think, great, it's on its way. But then you check the next day and it's still there. Uh, And then the next day and it hasn't moved. And you're beginning to wonder, well, has something gone wrong? Is there some sort of hold up? And there is perhaps a sense of that here. Are we saying that the early church were being disobedient or slow to fulfill their commission? Well, not necessarily, but the fact remains that the gospel hasn't moved beyond Jerusalem. And actually, it's probably going to take something pretty big in order for that to happen. Think of some of the summary statements we've seen so far in the book. What was life like for Christians in Jerusalem? Well, at the end of chapter 2 we read that day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favour with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Yes there was opposition in chapter 4 Peter and John are arrested and brought before the council 
but they're released and at the end of the chapter we read now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own but they had everything in common and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all and that is not an easy thing to walk away from Now, of course, Christians deciding to go elsewhere in Judea or to go to Samaria, they wouldn't be walking away from Christian fellowship altogether, depending on how many went with them. There would still be some amount of Christian fellowship wherever they ended up. But it is very hard to leave a big Christian community and move to a smaller one. Remember that the church in Jerusalem numbered thousands at this point, We're told early in chapter 4 that there were 5,000 men. Now undoubtedly those thousands of people would have been divided into smaller congregations. But they were probably still fairly sizable. And it's not that they didn't have their tensions. We see that in chapter 6 with the complaint that leads up to the ordination of the first deacons. One of whom is the Philip who features in this chapter So it's not that everything was perfect in the Jerusalem church. It's not that everything was rosy. Uh, We don't have any churches like that in the Bible or in real life. But it was comfortable. So who's going to take the first step? In light of that, who's going going to stand up and say, well, I'm going to uproot my family and move to Samaria for the sake of the gospel? Maybe some of them even spiritualized it and said, you know, I've prayed about it, but I just feel that the Lord wants us to be in Jerusalem right now. After all, uh, some people need to stay. We can't all go. Well, yes, they couldn't all go, but at this point, no one has gone. Jesus had said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But, but so far, the witness has stopped at Jerusalem. But now, bam, persecution hits and God's great plan takes a step forward. The package that seemed to have stalled starts moving again. The machine that that seemed as if it had ground almost to a standstill suddenly ramps up production. Satan had tried to sabotage it, but all he'd succeeded in doing was getting the whole thing moving again. Charles Spurgeon said on in a sermon on this passage, God never meant the church to be like a nut shut up in a shell or like ointment enclosed in a box. Spurgeon went on to say, it is very pleasant to be comfortably settled under an edifying ministry, but the Lord has need of some of his servants in places where there is no light. Spurgeon, of course, is talking to people who, listening to him, were comfortably settled under an edifying ministry. But he's telling them, uh, some of you should actually think about going elsewhere. No doubt the believers in Jerusalem felt comfortably settled where they were. But there was no light in the rest of Judea. There was no light in Samaria. In fact, the whole world, the rest of the world was still in darkness But persecution was God's plan to diffuse the perfume of the gospel beyond Jerusalem. If the people will not go willingly, well, the persecution will make them go. 
So what's the application of all of this for us? Well, for a start, we, we have yet another reminder here that what Satan means for evil, God means for good. Would the believers in Jerusalem have welcomed this persecution? Well, of course not. What verse 3 describes is brutal. We've been introduced to Saul at the end of the last chapter as the young man who kept an eye on the coats of those stoning Stephen. We're told at the start of this chapter that Saul approved of the execution and there arose on that very day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. So far in the book of Acts, the pressure on Christians has been building and building. But with the the killing of Stephen, it's as if the floodgates open and right at the heart of this new, more intense wave of persecution is Saul. In verse 3, he's ravaging the church. He's entering house after house, dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Think of the Gestapo going house to house looking for Jews. Well, that is Saul here looking for Christians. And I'm sure those early Christians couldn't see how those evil actions could possibly lead to anything good. How could good come from this? Now, I've no doubt they trusted God. They trusted that God would bring good out of this. But as they watched loved ones being dragged, being dragged off, as they waited for the knock on their own door, as they, they left everything and fled, I'm sure they struggled to see exactly what good might come out of this. It was a situation that none of them would have chosen. And perhaps you're in a situation this morning that you wouldn't have chosen in a million years. But God can bring good out of it. And if you are his child this morning, he will bring good out of it. Think of Christians in Ukraine driven from their homes. Is that what they would have chosen? None of them would. But some of them have ended up in other countries where they've had opportunities to share the gospel with people who wouldn't otherwise have heard it. In fact, just this week, I heard of Ukrainian missionaries who ended up in Moldova as a result of the persecution, as a result of the war. Uh, And through their work among Jewish people there in Moldova, they've seen several Jews coming to faith in Christ. A few months ago, they had no plans at all to be in Moldova, but God had plans for them to be there. And he used the wicked deeds of evil men to bring it about. What is God doing in, in, in the war in Ukraine? It's a question that, that we won't be able to fully answer in this life. But, but we see little, little hints, little examples of good that God is bringing out of this. So that's the first application I want to draw from these verses. The very things that Satan is using to try and hinder the work of the gospel, whether that's ungodly laws or whatever, God can use to advance the gospel. Satan always overstretches himself. At the moment in our society, we're being asked to believe that black is white and white is black. But there's only so long that people can do that for before it all comes crashing down. There's only so long that people can pretend that the emperor has clothes on when he hasn't. 
So the first application today is take confidence because the very things that we think will hinder the work of the gospel, God often uses to advance it. It's like playing chess. Satan, Satan makes his move and he, he, he thinks he's won, but, but God is, is five moves, an infinite number of moves ahead of him. The second application I want to draw out here is to recognize that each of us face the same temptation that the believers in Jerusalem did before persecution came, and that is to stay where it's comfortable. When I started theological college, having just moved uh, back to Northern Ireland from Scotland, if you'd asked Carla or I where we'd like to go long term, we would have said either Scotland or the Republic of Ireland. Why? Well, because we felt that those places were in greater need than Northern Ireland, where there are more evangelical churches per person than anywhere else in Europe. But fast forward three and a half years, at the end of the course, we had to make a direct choice between Belfast and Stranraer, and it was suddenly a much harder decision. If you'd asked us three years before, we wouldn't have had to think about it. But suddenly it was a much harder decision. Why? Well, frankly, because we got comfortable. There were lots of Christians, lots of churches. It had been been a great blessing to experience that for those three years or so. But once you experience that for a while, it gets harder to leave. We knew that if we had kids in the future, there would be plenty of other Christian children for them to be friends with. And so what would have been an easy decision three years before suddenly became a lot harder. And I'm not saying that that someone else faced with that same choice couldn't have made a, a different choice. But all I'm saying is that it is hard to leave what is comfortable and familiar and some of you know that from experience. But that's the sort of thing we're called to do as Christians for the sake of the gospel. Am I saying that every Christian or even most Christians need to, to move somewhere else for the sake of the gospel? No. But as Spurgeon puts it, every Christian should say, where can I do the most good And if he can do more good anywhere beneath the sun than in the land of his birth, or or we could add in the place where he's currently living, he is bound to go there if he can. Every Christian should ask, where can I do the most good? Not where do I have the most friends, not where can I make the most money, but where can I do the most good? But how many Christians do actually ask themselves that when they're entering the world of work or getting married or or planning to start a family? Sadly, I don't think it's many. Other considerations take precedence. But what if we're to ask the question now, where can you do the most good? Well, actually, for for almost all of us here, if not all of us, I would argue that the most good we can do is here in Stranraer. 
If I was preaching this sermon in, in a bigger congregation or in an area where there were more gospel preaching churches, my application would be very different. I'd be calling people to consider moving elsewhere for the sake of the gospel. We know from experience here how much of a difference can be, can be made by, by a family or, or an individual who, who moves somewhere else and really commits to a church. Whether that's because they, they specifically move to support the work of the congregation or whether they just move for, for work or for other reasons. And in fact, even if you're someone who has moved to this area primarily for something other than church, I think in light of this passage, you should have a reminder that, that we don't end up anywhere by accident. And also a dawning realisation that, that whatever reasons you may have had for coming here, God ultimately brought you here so that you could play a part in bringing the gospel to this community. And the key way to do that is by throwing yourself into the work of a local church. You know, those fleeing persecution in this chapter, they probably weren't asking themselves, where, where can we do the most good? Uh, they were probably just asking the question, where can I go that I'll, that I'll not be killed, initially at least? And yet where they, they ended up had been God's plan all along for the spread of the gospel. So I say my application would be quite different if I was preaching in this chapter in a bigger congregation that had all its own elders and deacons and was fully financially self-supporting. But, but every church, and I'd include ourselves in this, should want to get to the position where they are ascending church. Whether that's sending individuals, sending out a, a daughter congregation, a church plant. Every church should want to get to the position where they are ascending church because that's the pattern of the gospel. God sends his son and then Jesus sends his followers out to all the nations of the earth. And when those followers here in Axiot are perhaps a bit slower to get moving than they should have been, God sends persecution. God is a scatterer, not a hoarder. God delights to, to scatter for the sake of the gospel. And so how sad it is to see churches that want to hoard people and hoard finances when there's so much need all around. As individuals, God calls us to live sacrificially. I, I think all Christians would agree with that. He, he calls us to lose our lives in order that we might save them. And if that's to be part of our DNA at an individual level, surely it has to be reflected in how our churches operate. Self-sacrifice at the church level as well as the individual level. But that doesn't mean that this chapter shouldn't bring a challenge to us here in Stranraer. Because if the gospel scatters people, well maybe some of us need to think about getting involved in a, in a club or activity or society or hobby where we can meet people and have opportunities to share the gospel with them. Or perhaps we're already involved in things like that but we need to start seeing them in a new light as something that God can use to bring the light of the gospel to a group of people who wouldn't otherwise hear it. 
And there's another challenge here that doesn't involve us going anywhere we don't already go. Because by nature, not only do we want to stay where it's comfortable, we also want to stay in our comfort zones. We do want to stay in our comfort zones. And for some of you, it probably wouldn't be in your comfort zone to go up and speak to a new person at church. I don't even mean necessarily talking to them on, on their first day, though, though if you want them to come back, it might be a good idea. But is it possible that we have people who've been coming to church for months and uh, you've never so much as introduced yourself to them? I don't mean you have to go up and have a big conversation. You don't even have to ask them anything. Just very simply, hello, I'm whatever. It's nice to see you here. If they want to introduce themselves, fine. It's all that's all that's needed. The Christians in the New Testament, they shared their lives with one another. Uh, will we not even share our names? By nature, we are, are self-centered. We're inward focused. We pick the easy option. But the gospel calls us to count others as more important than ourselves. It pushes us outwards, outwards geographically, out of our comfort zones. And of course, for Jewish Christians to take the gospel to Samaria... That didn't just mean taking it to strangers. It meant taking it to enemies. It is hard to emphasize just how much the Jews and Samaritans hated one another. The Samaritans were regarded by the Jews as both ethnic and religious half-breeds. The antagonism between them went back a thousand years. About 150 years before this, the Jewish high priest had gone to the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim and destroyed it. There is not much love lost between the two groups. And yet the gospel transforms our prejudices. So when some of these early Christians are forced out of Jerusalem, rather than avoid Samaria like the plague, some of them, like Philip, deliberately go there and they share the gospel with them. The challenge for us today isn't so much in moving to an area full of people we have a natural prejudice against. But are there people who, if, if they walked in one door of the church, you might walk out the other door? Or who you'd avoid, not simply because you don't like talking to new people, but because they're not the sort of person you want anything to do with. Because they're the sort of person that respectable society looks down on. But if God is literally putting people in front of you and you're reacting to them just the way an unbeliever would, what does that say about your own spiritual condition? James warns us in his letter about treating the, the rich man who walks into church differently from the poor man. But if we would go up and talk to, to the nice Christian family visiting on holiday quicker than we would talk to the local person who's just come in off the street and who clearly has issues, are we really any different? So the gospel pushes us outward. Uh, for some it will push them out geographically. Depending on the stage of life we're at and our responsibilities, it should push us out into our communities rather than just moving from home to church, maybe to work and then home again. 
Whether we have moved here or been born here, we need to see ourselves in God's sovereignty as having been placed in the community that we're in and even the street we're in for the sake of the gospel. And for all of us, the gospel will push us out of our comfort zones. Hearts that have been opened to the gospel will also be open to other people. And if they're not open to other people, if they're, if they're closed to, to the unbelievers around us, we have to ask whether they have been opened to the gospel in the first place. Well, we'll come back and look a bit more at verses 4 through 7 next time. But just as we start to wind things up today, what's the result of all this? What's the result of people facing persecution, moving geographically, moving out of their comfort zones and taking the gospel to people who they would naturally despise? Well, we see the answer in verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. There was much joy in that city. Joy among the new believers there? Well, yes. But I don't think we can limit it to that. Because surely it also includes joy among those who had moved to that city to bring the gospel to those who were there. Uh, The Apostle John writes in 1 John, and we are writing these things to you. And he doesn't say so that your joy may be complete, but he says so that our joy may be complete. Because sharing the good news brings joy, not just to those who receive it, but also to those who share it. If there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents, will there not be joy on earth? The most miserable, joyless Christians I know are those who are consumed with themselves, their work, their health, their families. If they have any spare time, it's devoted to their hobbies. Their involvement in church is a bare minimum. Move somewhere else for the sake of the gospel. It's hard enough to convince them to be at church every week. Uh, Never mind to get involved in a go team or, or other outreach that's taking place on their doorstep. But on the other hand, the most joyful Christians I know are those who are pouring themselves out for the sake of the gospel. Those who are stretched, uh, perhaps even beyond their limits at times. Those who choose to spend their time with people who they wouldn't naturally want to have anything to do with. If they're not as physically able as to be involved as they would like it's clear that their heart is still in what's going on that they're praying they're they're asking about what's happening they're they're giving contributions for church lunches because what's the principle that the lord jesus sets out he says for for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it So many professing Christians try to save their lives by limiting their involvement in gospel work to as little as they can, by standing at arm's length from the church. Even though, as Paul says in Ephesians, it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. And yet the tragedy is that in trying to save their lives, they lose their joy. In trying to save their lives, they lose their joy. They give up the chance of a front row seat to see what God is doing in a community because they prefer to sit in a more comfortable armchair at the back. 
And yes, they're, they're robbing others of the gifts and talents that God has given them for service. But they're also robbing themselves of joy. If the believers who ended up in Samaria had been waiting until they ended up in the ideal place to serve God, the ideal place to share the gospel, they'd have missed out on that joy. If they'd said, we'll wait until we end up somewhere where the people aren't going to be as hard. We'll wait until we're somewhere where the people are likely to be more receptive. If they'd said, sure, we haven't got anywhere with the Samaritans for a thousand years. What's the point of trying now? We know how they'll respond to us. If they said those things, what would have happened? Well, they'd have missed out on this joy in verse 8. And God would simply have done his work through others. Because God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us to move anywhere. He doesn't need us to speak to people. Yes, in his sovereignty, he's chosen that he will use human beings to advance the gospel. But if we refuse to get involved, if we drag our heels, he will use others and they will have that joy instead. Ultimately, these verses aren't about the people who were scattered and about what they did, but they're about the God who scattered them for the sake of the gospel. They're about the God who uses the very things that we think are going to be disastrous for the church in order to advance his kingdom. And so to sum it all up, what are the opening verses of Acts chapter 8 about? Well, they're about the death of one man bringing blessing to the nations. They're about the execution of an innocent man leading to the spread of the gospel. Samaria was blessed because Stephen died. Because of his death, they got to experience new life. And that's ultimately what the gospel is. It's about the death of one man bringing blessing to the nations. Not Stephen, but Jesus Christ. Stephen's death wasn't redemptive. It only brought blessing in the sense that the persecution that followed led to the spread of the gospel. But Jesus died in fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. And Jesus' death actually does bring salvation for all who put their trust in him. So as you said here this morning, have you done that? Have you put your trust in him? Perhaps one thing that puts you off becoming a Christian is that it looks like you'd be joining the losing side. Or perhaps you would say that you're a Christian but inwardly you don't want to commit because all you can see is closing churches and cultural changes and it all seems so outdated. The glory days it seems are behind. And yet against the odds, today we're living at a time when Acts 1 verse 8 has been fulfilled to an extent way beyond what these early Christians could ever have imagined. Where the gospel has gone out and is going out, not just to Judea and Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. We're living in an age where attempts to, to snuff out the church do the opposite. Just as in communist China in 1949, the missionaries were, were kicked out. But what did they do? They took the gospel to other nations. And at the same time, the church in China experienced explosive growth. Jesus promised that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And true joy comes from trying, not trying to resist that reality, but from getting on board with it. By buying the need of King Jesus, by living for him, 
and by throwing yourself into the work of his kingdom. Amen. Well, there was much joy in that city of Samaria. And we now have the opportunity to join the nations of the earth who are shouting to God with joy uh, by singing Psalm 66. Psalm Psalm 66a, page 136, verses 1 to 5. The second half of verse 2 says, All the earth will praise and worship. That surely seemed very unlikely when Stephen was executed. All the earth praise and worship. I'm sure they were wondering, would, would the church survive at all? And yet the very thing that looked like it meant disaster for the church brought blessing to the world. And it also brought joy. Verse 4. There in him let us be joyful. And we experience that joy not by trying to restrict and, and limit our work in what he is doing. But by giving ourselves to it. We can be joyful in him as the one who rules over the nations. As the one who calls all the nations to worship him. And sends his people out to those nations. We'll not sing verse 7 on the next page, but it goes on to say, yet, or it, it talks of God's people going through a severe trial, going through fire and water, and I'm sure it seemed like that for the Christians in Jerusalem. And, and yet the verse goes on to say, yet you brought us out and brought us to a place of plenty. And that is the God we worship, a God who brings good out of the worst circumstances, both for us as individuals and for his church. So Psalm 66a, 1 to 5, we'll stand and sing praise. <laughs> 